The 2020 election is heating up. Jerry Falwell Jr. is placed on an indefinite, indefinite leave, uh, leave of absence. But I went on a drive recently. I have a cacophony of thoughts as I return. We'll start there on the Corey Track Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. The listenership of this show is plurality South Carolina, but it is not majority South Carolina. So some of you hearing me say what I'm about to say, you, you don't know fully what I mean, but we are really fortunate to live where we do in the upstate of South Carolina. With the reality being that here's Greenville, I think now the 33rd or 34th largest media market. So it's big populations for city stuff, but then being within short drives of the beginning of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the best of both worlds. And so recently I, I recognized that I had not ever driven the Blue Ridge Parkway. And it's one of the things you're supposed to do around here. If you're in the Asheville Brevard area or if you're in the upstate of South Carolina, that's uh, supposed to be a a good day trip. And so on a Saturday morning, I went ahead and started my way up there towards Asheville. And uh, ultimately, ultimately my goal was actually a waterfall that I've been wanting to see. Uh, This is, the name is a misnomer. It's called Skinny Dip Falls. But I wanted to go up there and see this waterfall and jump off a giant rock that I knew was there. It was, I saw it on Instagram, thought it was going to be a good time. But that's a long drive. On the Blue Ridge Parkway, it's 23 miles up that winding road, so you have to go fairly slowly, and people are stopping constantly for these scenic overlooks, and I was doing the same thing, and it was truly a blast. But here's one thing I, I did. I decided to really turn off the podcast and the music and the sermons and think and pray and contemplate. That was part of my goal that day. And I started thinking some of the things, some of the thoughts I was having should be on the show. It should be content for us to discuss together, maybe for you just to consume or maybe for you to respond to in some way. I hope hope you will. I hope some of it is compelling in that way. But then I come back to my microphone And I know what my instinct is. The instinct for me is not any different than anyone who's on conservative media. And I am technically, because I'm on his radio talk, 91.9, 92.9, because I I, I broadcast there, I am in conservative media. And so what's happening around me, the pressure placed upon me by the what I know could be an audience that would listen to things I have to say, that pressure is, well, you better talk about Trump and Biden. Because, you know, Biden said that thing that sounded kind of racist on that one show, and both of them sound kind of senile, and so you've got to do it. That's what you should go do. Hey, you've got to talk about the COVID stuff or whatever. There's, there is a, uh, there's a list of things you're supposed to do, and we might get into that today. I, I suspect we will. And then there's the second tier of stories that conservative media might focus on. For example, one coming to this microphone maybe an hour, two hours ago, I was thinking I was going to start here. There are now these rallies with teachers who are uh, being dressed like the Grim Reaper and carrying around coffins who are writing their own obituaries and mailing them to the superintendent of their school district or their governor who wants them to reopen. And that, that deeply bothers me. I'm deeply bothered by the melodrama of that. I'm deeply bothered that I've got apparently some group of 
professional educators who are willing to either actually believe that kind of madness, that they're going to die, that getting COVID-19 is death itself, that they are that psychotic and neurotic and also teaching children, that they actually believe that, or to know that they're just being dishonest and they're lying. They have some kind of political agenda. There's something else they're trying to accomplish. It's not a reasonable position. It would be different. This is where I was going to start, and I kind of am starting here. It would have been different if these teachers were doing these rallies and writing these letters and saying, I am so fearful of getting this, uh, getting this virus and giving it to this person in my life that is vulnerable and who has respiratory issues and giving it to these grandparents. I, I have so much fear for what I, if I contract it, what it might do to others. But no, they're writing their obituaries. Healthy, generally young people under 50, equating their contracting COVID-19 as death itself, and it's absurd, it's dumb. It's, if it's not dumb, then it's dishonest, because it can only be one of the two. And so I think about them and how they are handling this part of their life and this season in their life, and I start stewing on that as I'm driving up the parkway. And then I hear earlier that morning, and it comes back to mind, that it was something like 80 players in the NFL, 80 NFL players deciding to opt out of this season over COVID-19 concerns. And then hearing their reasoning, and that again, it wasn't a reasoning of, I have this family member. I have uh, this situation where I can't not be around. I'm going to have to be around this vulnerable person. And so I'm going to be conscientious and be super careful uh, about getting COVID-19. But the ones, it seems that are making public statements are scared of them getting COVID-19. Professional athletes, literally world-class athletes. I've made the point many times in the NFL. If you took the NFL roster, took it to the Olympics, whenever we actually have a Summer Olympics games, it doesn't matter the event in track and field. An NFL player could medal. They've never done it before. They don't have much experience in it. They, maybe not gold medal, but they, they are that kind of world-class athlete. They're not Olympic athletes because they actually have another skill, and so they don't do boring things like track and field. I know I just offended some of you track and field people, but what you do is generally boring. That's why we only watch your sport every four years and we pretend to care about it for three weeks. All right, I'm going to move on from my hatred of the Olympics. In, in any event, so I start, start stewing on that. Those teachers and their fear of losing their lives, they say, and these, these athletes in their 20s, best shape of anybody on planet Earth, and losing their lives. I start thinking through all that. And then I'm back from the parkway. I've been stewing a lot on what that means the concern for life. And then we had this wannabe little earthquake here in the Southeast. It, I think, emanated in Greensboro. And I felt, I mean, felt it a little bit here down in the upstate of South Carolina, a little, basically a bump. And I start ruminating on that. It was Sunday morning. I had church. We're doing the show now. All these things are stewing together, and I haven't crystallized in totality all of my thoughts, but there's some kind of connection here. There's synapses firing to this end. 2020, maybe supernaturally, is some sort of call to action. I hate calling things wake-up calls, but some kind of call to if not repentance, then to pay closer attention, to, to wake us from our social media slumber, to wake us from our media slumber, all the ways that we distract ourselves. Here is this time in human history that we, we did start with 
Australian fires and then move into an impeachment and almost go to war with Iran. Some of this stuff is very United States-centric, I understand. But then getting into COVID-19 starting up, lockdowns, economic crash, racial unrest. I didn't even mention Kobe Bryant's death, which was kind of significant to people as well. There was... All of this, and then we have, we just had a hurricane that came through, did some, some serious damage in the Northeast, uh, and now, now an earthquake, and here we are in August, and we still have an election to come, and I, I just have something in me that's saying, I don't know what the Lord's doing. I know that my current thinking continues to come back as, pay attention, think, be circumspect that you have all of these events that should cause us to pause and reimagine our world and rethink our world and examine our own worldview, our own consistencies and hypocrisies. And that was another, I'm, I'm coming, this is all coming back. I promise, guys. I'm, I've got a point, I think, that's crystallizing as I talk. It was, an, it was another thought I had going up the parkway. I've been reading the prophets lately, the, you know, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, going through some of the minor prophets, Nahum, Micah. I've been reading some of that. And it strikes me how there's, for someone like me, who gets a lot of satisfaction from following the rules and doing the right thing and being a decent person, I would read through this passage where God is saying to Israel, you show up for worship in the temple, you wear all the right things, you do all the right uh, ceremonies and right sacrifices and say all the right prayers, you keep the Sabbath properly. And I'm reading that and going, man, this is really cool. God is commending them. They're like doing all the right stuff. And then the, the line would be, woe is you. And I'm like, wait, what? They, do, they did all the right stuff. What are you woeing to them for? And it's woe is you because you do that and then you go out and treat your employees badly. You treat others with no mercy and no compassion. You don't take these values into your household, into your workplace, into your neighborhood. You are hypocritical. You are fake. and You are doing all the right things, and you are faking it. And it was convicting to me that, I mean, that's, at least in some large part, that is me. Different versions of myself. I'm almost even comfortable with that idea that there's a work me and a church me and another social group me, and I get to have a bunch of different me's. They don't integrate and so all of this stews up together, I think, to this. I am looking around at a world that's given me all kinds of signals that say stop and think and be circumspect. I'm stewing on people who are, I think, reacting un either dishonestly or unintelligently to the threat to their own lives regarding a virus. And it's, this idea is life, though. I want to protect my life. My life is this thing I'm trying to protect. It's very valuable to me, and I think... At least two things come to mind. One is, I would love to say to those teachers and to those athletes with some kind of compassion, don't be dominated by fear. A life led and life lived in fear. As if the only purpose of life is to not die. That's the only reason we exist. I just can't die. No matter what else happens in life, that's the point. Oh man, what a miserable way to live. There's so many things you won't experience. There's so much to do, and you're obsessed with keeping yourself safe. And, man, a lot of life isn't safe. It all got me here. 
You know when you go outside in the winter, if you have a discussion with somebody or maybe you're by yourself and you breathe out and you get that vapor, you get that fog, that condensation. I can't remember what preacher I listened to that said this. I think it's more than one. But they called that the life of a breath. The life of a breath is that vapor. You breathe it out. You can see how quickly it dissipates and goes away. So then it brings me all around to the epistle, the epistle of James to James, however that's supposed to be said. And he writes, your life is a vapor. And it's, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be something to help us focus on the reality that we're not here long. There's the life of that breath. It just goes up into the air and it's gone. And then there's the breath of life in us. There is that Holy Spirit for those of us who are in Christ. There is the breath of God that animates everyone made in the image of God. And we don't stay here long in context. And so there's something in me that connects all of those. That goes, guys, to the athletes, to the teachers, you, your, your life is basically the, the life of a breath. It's so short. Go embrace it. Go do something. And for all of us, as there's sign after sign after sign of, I don't think an impending doom, I don't think of an impending apocalypse, because that's not my theology, and I, I think it's honestly very foolish. Uh, I shouldn't go that far. It's, it is an uninformed uh, or needs to be rethought eschatology or theology uh, about these things being some kind of sign of the end of times, but they are some kind of signal to pay attention. You know, C.S. Lewis says that something to the effect of God talks to us. He, he, like, whis- I think he whispers in our best times. He talks in like normal times, but it's in the pain that he's got a, like a loudspeaker. It's in pain and hardship that God is being the loudest. Guys, are we not in some kind of pain and hardship? Is this not, the, is this not one of the hardest years you've all been through? We've all been through? And I don't, I don't know what God's saying, but I, knew, I do know it's at least this. It's loud. It's at least saying, pay attention. Take stock of what you are doing and what you're not doing. Think about what you should be doing, what you're putting off, how you're allowing safety and security to drive your decision-making more than a boldness or a faith. There's some balance to be had in all of that. But those are the thoughts that drove me up and down the Blue Ridge Parkway. That, the life of a breath, is so short, we, we are fortunate, we are blessed that the breath of life has been breathed into us as believers to walk circumspect and think about, think about life, what we should and shouldn't be doing with it. When we come back, I do want to get into the Jerry Falwell saga, talk about the latest in the presidential race. I have some other audios and things I want to share with you today. It should be a fun one, so stick with us for the rest of the Corey Truex Show. Oops. I got into my point so quickly that I forgot to do all the formalities and normal things of broadcasting. 
This is why I'm not a true professional. My name is Corey Truax. It's called The Corey Truax Show. And amongst many other things, I'm the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina. You are invited as we are doing a really fun and interesting, compelling, affirming, uh, it's just a really good series, in the book of Revelation. You should come on out in Greenville. Uh, we have had only one COVID-19 infection. It was me. And so... I, Actually, I had somebody ask me that about, when, about my COVID-19 thing. Uh, did, you, did you get it at church? And I think there was a desire for the answer to be yes. Like that, because that's they wanted to be affirmed in their own thought that churches shouldn't be meeting. And uh, no, I didn't get it at church. So I nana boo-boo, all right? And that's how mature I am sometimes. Let's move here. The... Well, the other thing I'm supposed to tell you is we're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk. That was it. Also, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. All right, formalities out of the way. Here we go. As you might have noted over the few years we've had together, I am not a fan of Jerry Falwell Jr. Jerry Falwell Jr. is the neurotic president of the world's largest Christian university, Liberty University, an excellent institution. I have some issues with a little bit of how they operate, but generally an excellent institution who, uh, fr- from whom I have many friends who are graduates. Heath Powell, who used to do sports with us whenever sports happen again. I'm sure he'll be back to do sports on the show. Liberty graduate. Uh, I work with a Liberty graduate. Liberty has a good thing going there. The best donors in the world. There's biggest Christian university for a reason. Jerry Jr., is, uh, d- does not, he was the oldest of the two, oldest of the two brothers, um, of the two brothers who were going to take over when Jerry Falwell Sr. passed, as he did. The younger of the two is rock solid. The younger of the two does ministry. He pastors the church there, Thomas Road, Baptist. He is rock solid. Jerry Jr. Uh, is a little different. So I, I ran into an issue with him during the Trump campaign because here he was supposed to be the, the president of a Christian university, and he was endorsing the most immoral person who's ever run for president, just horrific person. And then he's, he's even in Trump's office pumping him up as this mighty man of valor and righteousness as they pose in front of a wall of Trump, uh, where Trump puts on the, his own wall pictures of himself when he's been featured on magazines. And in the background of the picture, there's a couple times where Donald Trump was on the cover of Playboy. It, it's Part of it is hypocrisy in that I know how strict Liberty University is. Like North Greenville offers a lot more grace and I would call it adulthood to our students than what Liberty does. And uh, I would call it likely problematic, maybe not expellable, but some kind of some kind of action will be taken if you were a Liberty student posing in front of a Playboy magazine. It'd be an issue, but it wasn't an issue for him. And then you continue on with basically his Trump worship has been has been a problem. It's caused him to say a lot of dumb things. And then you, you, you get over to uh, some questionable Finance, some financial questions about how, how he's running real estate uh, around Lynchburg in that area in Virginia. He had the small controversy of, uh, he, he, he liked an, an Instagram picture of the supermodel who was, I think that picture qualifies as pornography in my opinion. It's at least modified nudity. Uh, and maybe you shouldn't be, again, if, or if a Liberty student would have done it, it's probably a big deal. It's an issue. If you're using Instagram as an almost pornography site as he's searching around as this old man clicking around the photos of a young lady. Uh, 
So we, we had that issue. For the board, the board of trustees, and by the way, uh, on the board of trustees is lots of people you would know, but the one I'm thinking of is Vines. I can't remember who did it. One of them came out recently and said, we needed to get Jerry Falwell Jr. out as the president of the university. He's too erratic, too connected to political things and stuff that shouldn't be connected to a Christian university. Well, finally, the shoe has dropped. And of course, I have some uh, satisfaction about that, but I also have some deeper thoughts. Here are the facts of the case. Jerry Falwell Jr. posted a picture on Instagram because that's what 58-year-olds do, where he is on a yacht holding a beverage. He is next to a woman who is also also holding a beverage. They say they are not alcoholic beverages. I, uh, I don't, A, don't care if they are uh, as a moral or biblical stance. I would care as a matter of hypocrisy in that, again, Liberty University has a strict alcohol policy for its faculty, staff, and students. They say they are non-alcoholic beverages. I choose to believe them because that's who I am. I try to choose to believe, I try to believe the best of folks. Also, the young lady uh, obviously had a bathing suit on this yacht, and so she has put jeans on and left them unbuttoned and unzipped, and they are down, and she's got a bit of a belly uh, and I believe that's because she is pregnant. Apparently, this was also some kind of costume party. And Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, has his je- his jeans also unbuttoned and unzipped with his belly sticking out. Um, and he's got his arm around her that, in a way that I, I very specifically don't put my arm around women. I've actually had someone uh, comment before uh, during a picture. like pe- people were. I don't know why people were taking pictures with me. This was a long time ago, but there was like a line of people getting pictures. And I don't touch them. Like literally, like I'll hover my arm behind a woman, but I will not touch because God knows what's going to happen. Uh, what, thing, what thing I might get accused of. And so uh, he is not hovering. He's, he's got a hold of her. And apparently it's his wife's assistant. And it, it seems it's okay in the marriage and all that. The wife was on the boat. She's, she's at this costume yacht party. In any event, that image... He put up, took down like 10 minutes later, but enough people screenshotted it. And that was enough for the Board of Trustees at Liberty University to uh, ask him to take a, they called it, I can't remember the word they used, but the, a leave of absence that does not have a, a definite ending. And it, yes, it, an indefinite leave of absence. Now, uh, before they did that, though, Jerry Fowler Jr. was on a radio show in Lynchburg, Virginia, where he was talking about all this. I want to play the audio of that for you for an important reason. We're not just beating up on Jerry Falwell Jr. right now. I have a deeper point we're getting to. I want you to listen closely to this interview with Jerry Falwell Jr. I have a couple thoughts from it. When we come back, here is Jerry Falwell Jr. What's up with that picture on Instagram? You know, it was weird because she could, she was, she's pregnant, so she couldn't get her, she couldn't get her pants up, and <laughs> so I was like trying to like. My, I had on a pair of jeans that I haven't worn in a long time, so I couldn't get mine zipped either. And so, <laughs> and so I just put my belly, I just put my belly out like hers, and it was just. Um, she's my wife's assistant, and she's a sweetheart, and I should never put it up because it embarrassed her. Because um, anyway, I, I've apologized to everybody. And I promise my kids I'm gonna try to be I'm gonna try to be a good boy from here on out. I only have so much experience with this, and it's limited. 
But does he not sound drunk? Like the pronunciation of words, all kind of, uh, they're not distinct syllables in a lot of places, and it all jumbles together. I've only had so many conversations with inebriated people, but that is how they sound. That is, an, I'm not making a claim, I'm asking a question. I would even love to get your feedback at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, or wherever you find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Does, it, does he not sound drunk in that clip? That's one takeaway. Number two, there is a deeper lesson to be learned here. For our parenting and our uh, treatment of, of one another uh, and in life in general. Jerry Falwell Jr. is 58 years old. And he has likely never been in any scenario where being told no would not be a risk for the person being saying no. This is part of the problem in growing up in a very, very small town. Lynchburg, Virginia is a tiny place. It is basically Liberty University. Lynchburg wouldn't really exist if it weren't for Liberty University. It's basically a ghost town when school is not in session. And his father built an empire. And so when you are the, the emperor's son, you're going to get a lot of deference from people. And then you're also going to get positions you might not actually earn. Now, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. can't be a stupid person. The guy went to, I think, University of Virginia's law school. And to get in there, that's not a joke. I, I wonder if I could have gotten in. I had a pretty strong L LSAT, but I don't know if I could have gotten into University of Virginia's law school. That's very competitive. So the guy is obviously smart, but to lead a Christian university, his only real qualification might have been, well, my name is Falwell. That's the guy who started this whole thing. That's my name, and so that's the job I should have. And I would even say he has done a good job. You can't argue with the business results of Liberty University, but... There is more to Christian education than just the bottom line. One of the ways I like to say it is Christian universities should be more than business, but they can't be less than business. You do have to set up systems and structures to be functional and be in the black and be able to run. But we are doing more than just trying to amass, amass wealth. That's what Christian education should be in Liberty University, I would argue, under Jerry Falwell Jr.'s leadership. Got, got those interests out of whack. And so what, what can we learn? Well, let's not be uh, those folks who are respecters of persons in that way. That we, we need to be folks that evaluate every, every individual on their own merit, not by their last name. We need to be careful when those of us who have some kind of influence or power or significance in any organization, no matter how small, that we treat our kids and those close to us with the same with the same standards as everybody else. It isn't a good thing when dads and moms uh, uh, or aunts and uncles just reward a kid for having the right uh, the right to last name. It's it's not helpful. So there's a life lesson for us uh, that favoritism can sometimes lead to what we just heard from Jerry Falwell Jr. All right, so that's what's going on there. I suspect Ultimately, we will find that he never he never comes back. I think that's the logical conclusion of that story, and everyone will be better off for it. Let's go ahead and hit some lessons from 
the political campaign in the moment. So we got presidential election coming up in about three ish months. I think a little bit more. Yeah, a little bit less than three months. Anyway, let's listen to some audio. I want to make. I'm going to hit Biden in a minute. So if you're a pro-Trump person, which I can't imagine, like a true Trump person listening to my show, but uh, if you're just inclined to be more pro-Trump than pro-Biden, don't worry uh, about what I'm about to do. I'm going to hit both. We're going to hit both of them here in a second. This first one on Trump. Uh, he, he recently did this interview with Axios. He did an interview with Chris Wallace where he did show. They, they were disasters, by the way. Those interviews were disasters. Even a lot of Trump loyalists were saying that he did not do well in those. And he, he didn't. He didn't have command of the facts. He wasn't ready for a lot of the easy stuff. I played, an, I played some audio recently with him on Sean Hannity's show, or who I like to call the first lady. And he wasn't ready for the most easy question, what do you want the second term to be like? But here's Trump, I'm about to play for you, with an odd attack, with an odd attack on Joe Biden. And it tells us, especially in the Christian world, something that we always need to recall about this man. Here is President Donald Trump. No religion, no anything. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns. He's against energy, our kind of energy. That is Donald Trump talking about Joe Biden. He, he would lead to no religion. He hurts the Bible and he hurts God. Does it seem like he's not really all that familiar with the language? You think that's probably why he said 2 Corinthians instead of 2 Corinthians? He's not, he doesn't really know the Christian language because he's not one of us. The, the madness of evangelicals in 2016 that says he's had some kind of conversion. He didn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. But that, uh, that right there, here's what I want to pull out of it. Here's the deeper meaning. What we do know about Trump is his loyalty. If you will be loyal to him, he will be loyal to you. That's true. He's, he, uh, if that's one admirable thing I guess I can say about him, he's not loyal to his wives, but when it comes to business and interests, he is loyal to those who help him because for him, he's the center of the universe. He's the only thing that matters. Therefore, uh, if you will help him, then you've helped the center of the universe, and therefore I can do something good for you. And so he knows his interest groups. You see, he rolled them off there. Uh, to tell tell voters, Joe Biden would be anti-religion, anti-God, anti-Bible. And by the way, he didn't just say anti. He would hurt the Bible and hurt God, which, of course, is just bonkers stupid. Again, he doesn't speak the language that Christians speak because he's not one of us. I, I could riff on that for a while. Like, the Bible literally says of itself that it, it doesn't fade away, that the the, word, the words of people fade, nature fades, everything fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I think it's the uh, the grass withers and the flower falls, maybe? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So Joe Biden can come at the Bible all he wants. That's not going to work out all that well. Uh, he can come at the Lord God all he wants. He's not going to hurt God. Now, I understand what Trump's trying to say. He's trying to say to his base, he doesn't like you and he's going to hurt you. He's going to try to do bad things to you. So you have to vote for me because... Even though I'm not one of you, I defend you. I'm on your side. He, he went to guns on that. And so that's the elementary nature of the attack is, I'm on your team. He just doesn't know how to say it or talk about it. Now, let's hit Joe Biden. Uh, you know, Donald Trump here recently was bragging about how he had this mental acuity test that he did so well on. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us in 2020 in our politics. That's what a 
President, the President of the United States is bragging about. Joe Biden gets asked about taking a test regarding his mental acuity. And for good reason. Joe Biden is barely sentient. He doesn't put words together properly. I don't think he's drunk like I thought Jerry Falwell Jr.'s drunk. I just think he's at the beginning stages of dementia. And it's actually quite sad that we are watching a man disintegrate before our eyes mentally. It's quite sad. But that seems to be what's happening. So let's move on to Joe Biden. And then we'll get off of the stupid politics that is the United States of America. What you all know, but most people don't know, unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community. Uh-oh. That was the first thing he got in trouble for, was basically saying black people don't think differently like Hispanics do. Well, number one, I actually know what he's trying to say. He just said it inartfully. So just for example, Cubans tend to vote Republican pretty big because they've been in Cuba. They know what communism is, socialism, and leftism is. They know the damage it does, how, much, how bad it hurts people. So Cubans in Florida vote Republican fairly regularly. I think it's Puerto Ricans, maybe, maybe Dominicans. There's, other, there's another subgroup that vote Republican fairly often, and then most other uh, Latinx, I think is what we're saying now, or Latino people groups vote Democrat, whereas... When you're talking about black voters, I shouldn't be thinking about thinking, but voting, black voters across South, Midwest, out in California, up into the Northeast, black voters tend to vote the same way. So I know what he was trying to say. It just didn't come across properly. With incredibly different attitudes about different things. I am now realizing I pulled the wrong clip. Uh, so that's the clip that Joe Biden is supposed to be getting trouble for because that's kind of racisty. I agree. I just think... He didn't, say, he didn't say what he was trying to say properly. The one I meant to pull was this one. Here we go. This is the one where it's becoming quite clear that Joe Biden is just not mentally where an adult needs to be to be, be president of the United States. He's being interviewed on CBS. Here you go. And by the way, as I joke with him, you know, it, I, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say something I don't, I, I probably shouldn't say. I am very willing to let the American public judge my physical and mental fil my physical as well as my mental fil fitness that was actually right before or should be right after he talked about not taking a mental test and then asked this african-american interviewer if he had been tested for crack cocaine so uh way to go america those those are the two so good times will be had by all let's take a break when we come back i think i want to play some audio fro for you from andrew cuomo to make a bigger point, a deeper point. We'll talk about vice presidential nominees, and I have something to say about our COVID response even further as I continue to work through it myself mentally. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey Act Show this week. Thank you for being with us. If you have feedback, thoughts, or otherwise stories that you think need to be talked about on the show, I would be grateful if you send those over to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also reach the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. And I try to check that as often as I can. Let's go here. Andrew Cuomo was talking. He's the governor of New York, if you don't know. He was talking COVID-19 stuff, but there was a, a revealing moment as he was talking about how people who lived in New York, have started to exit some. And this is, uh, 
been a theme in California as well. If I'm, I'm in, into the podcasting world. Joe Rogan is the first or second most listened to podcast on the uh, available out there. And he has announced he's leaving Southern California and moving his operation to Texas for a bunch of reasons. But some of it's just business environment, tax, taxes, regulation, employment codes, uh, how they're handling COVID. So here's, here's Joe Rogan, by no stretch a conservative. I wouldn't call him a liberal either. He's actually quite weird and unbelievably entertaining. Uh, he's moving to, moving to Texas. So this is happening. People leave California. They leave, uh, they, they leave New York and go to other places. Oh, this is reminding me. I have a very interesting insight. I, wanna, uh, I have to put this on my notes to uh, talk about uh, because that'll be where I go next. All right, here we go. Uh, Andrew Cuomo. I love when my brain does that. Something I've been wanting to talk about on the show for like a month. I keep forgetting to do it. And then I say something that fires off that set of set of thoughts in my head. And now I get to share them with you. And I'm quite excited. I want to play this for you because it is instructive. Here is Andrew Cuomo talking about some of the folks who are leaving the state of New York. I literally talk to people all day long who are now in the Hamptons house, who also lived here, or in their Hudson Valley house, or in their Connecticut weekend house. And I say, you got to come back. When are you coming back? We'll go to dinner. I'll buy you a drink. Come over. I'll cook. They're not coming back right now. He was saying that in response to Bill de Blasio. So there's a, some infighting inside leftism in the Democratic Party because Bill de Blasio was promoting the idea of raising taxes again in New York City. Because it's one thing to live in New York State where taxes are high, it's another to live in New York City where you get added on even more income taxes. And Andrew Cuomo is complaining that wealthy people, the people who are getting taxed, leave. They end up just leaving New York. They're going to go stay in their Connecticut house, their Massachusetts house, their Pennsylvania house. They're going to make that their primary residence so they can stop paying all these New York taxes, and in particular, New York City taxes. For example, Donald Trump did that. He made his primary residence now in Florida in part, I think, to get away from the tax burden. And so there is at least something to learn of significance. You you can't have a system, a sustainable system, where 5 and 10% of the population pays 50, 60, 70% of the taxes. And that is what's taking place in a lot of those places. California has some really high income areas, and that's where Hollywood is. You got all those folks. New York is both a media, uh, it's, it's, it's both has a lot of media people that make a lot of money, but then that's where the financial system is. That's where Wall Street is. That's where the banks are. So a lot of the money is getting made in New York. Uh, and so it's a, it's a point that we should take, right? We should take the reality that you can't tax people forever and expect them to stick around. They will leave, and then you don't get to pay for all your precious programs, which means you should concentrate, minimize your programs to whatever has to happen, and uh, don't overdo it because you'll end up losing them all. You know, I was helping one of my nephews at school recently. Hi, Kobe, if you're listening. He doesn't listen, so he'll never hear that. But uh, I was helping him with English. He doesn't. He does an online school. And he's not quite finished. He'll be finishing up soon and for the year. And then he starts the, the new year, his senior year, with his brother, Caleb. Also, hi, Caleb. And hi, Sophie. Wesley and Reed, all the nieces and nephews. Uh, and we, we read a little Kurt Vonnegut essay together. Excuse me. A short story, and it was a satire. That, that was the assignment. 
And Kurt Vonnegut was writing at a time in the late 60s where the Cold War was still firmly in place. The existential and ideological struggle between freedom and bondage, communism and capitalism, was still going. There were, in American universities, in the intelligentsia, there were still people that just said, yes, that people can't be free. You've got to have an overclass of masters and the intelligent to tell everyone else what to do. There needs to be a few people that have all the power. Uh, and that was that was a 40 or 50 year ideological uh, struggle in the Cold War. And Kurt Vonnegut was speaking into it using satire. And he has this story uh, that it's already escaped the name of me. The word Harrison is in it. I think it might be just called Harrison. And it sets up this world of equality where uh, it actually opens up with this, this world that gets created in the United States was created by the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments. And you never find out what those amendments are and how we got to that many amendments. But he sets up the world this way. The very intelligent people, because it's not fair that they're more intelligent, they have a, a little chip put in their ear. So every 15, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, depending on how smart they are, the government plays some kind of distracting noise a car crash, a siren, so that that person can't keep a train of thought because that's not fair. It's, too, it's not fair that they're that smart. And then the beautiful people, they all wear masks and the masks are grotesque so that no one can see them for their, their physical appeal. And, and the athletes, those are particularly strong. Well, we, we put bags of birdshot around your neck and there was, a, there was a lot of that symbolism that if you want to create equality... We're going to create it, and we're going to create it through bringing down those who have more skill, intellect, physical ability, or physical appeal. That was the, the satire. And there's a big dramatic, I guess I could tell you, no spoiler alert here, it's 50 years old or more. Um, ultimately, they're the main two characters' son, he is athletic, smart, and ambitious, and so he, because he, he's only known this world of everyone must be equal, he goes about responding to this world by trying to become a despot. He sees himself as special and as above average. And if everyone's going to be okay with equality, well, he goes too far off the other end. And so it's it an entertaining story. Point there being that we come back to Andrew Cuomo and the, the taxation thing. It's something that the left has to recognize. That I want to do a show about here soon about the difference between inequity and equality. When there is inequality, it doesn't necessarily mean there is inequity. Things being equal is not a biblical value. Things having equity, fairness, that's a biblical value. But if things are fair, what you're going to have is different outcomes. Some people will have more things than others, will have different experiences than others. The, the idea that equality is... A, achievable, and B, desirable is wrong. Even in a biblical worldview, equality is not to be desired. Equity is, though. Fairness is. Justice is. But not equality. It's not even a biblical value. And so the, the folks that want to raise taxes all the time on the upper incomes looking for equality, what they want is both deleterious in its effect and it's not even realistic. All right. Here was the thing that just occurred to me. It's not in my notes, so here we go. Let's see if I can remember it. I think I have a new political insight, like a, a nerdy one, you know, because I got into this. I got into broadcasting 
because I understood the politics, the maps, the, the math of delegates and electoral college and all the patterns in the history. Like that was my original thing. Politics has now made me sad, mad, angry, and I hate it. But that was my entry, my entryway in, was being an expert on all things elections. And here is something I'm theorizing. I would be interested, especially my listeners who have been alive a little longer, would love to get your insight. But here is something I think is interesting. Historically, the Midwest is blue states. Michigan, I would even say uh, going, not just uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, I would go as far as Iowa was traditionally in presidential election, blue states. You go back to Clinton, he wins all of those. You go to uh, Kerry, John Kerry against George W. Bush, Gore wins all of those. I think the only exception is Iowa went to George W. Bush in against Kerry, but I think Gore won it in 2000. Okay, so what I'm establishing there is, historically, those are all blue states. They have been trending redder not just in presidential, the one presidential election of 2016, but in electing some governors. And at the same time, we are seeing, actually Wayne, a listener, uh, wrote, writes in about this and sometimes mentions how the, it, the areas like Atlanta, Nashville, Charlotte, that those areas are getting so big that they might turn those states blue coming up here soon. And so these two political phenomena are happening at the same time, where it seems to be the Midwestern states, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, Pennsylvania, are becoming, like they're, they're trending red. And down here in the South, there's a possibility of trending blue. And just the nerd in me, because no value statement about any party or politician, but just the nerd in me goes, I wonder why that is. And I have a theory. Here it is. Those states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania in particular, have very strong university systems. In Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you go to Penn State, you go to Michigan, you go to UW, University of Wisconsin. And when those graduates, the last 10 and 15 and 20 years, were coming out of college, what they recognized is that left-wing policies made it unbelievably expensive to live there. It was hard to live in Detroit or in Philadelphia or in Pittsburgh or in Milwaukee because cost of living was so high. What unions did and property taxes did and income taxes did in those places, it was hard to be a young person and start life. All the while, Atlanta, San Antonio, Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, Nashville, Charlotte, they were attracting those people, saying, you've got this great education that the Midwest gave you. Well, we've got lower cost of living with similar incomes and all the jobs in industry, you should move on down here. And we've seen that in the last two censuses, if that's the plural of census, I don't know. So 2020, excuse me, 2000, 2010, and now coming up in 2020, we're seeing the mass migration. It's not just immigration, but folks in the Midwest are moving here. And the ones who are moving here are disproportionately young. So what has happened is young people have flocked to the South by young, I I'm going to define that as under 40. And they're making red states less red. They're making them bluer. They're making the cities totally blue. Charlotte, Atlanta, Nashville, Dallas, uh, Houston, Birmingham. Those cities are liberal cities. But it's just not enough to offset all of the more conservative voters in rural places and suburban. But what's happened, because they all left... Because those young people all left the Midwest, all they left was their, their older white parents and their older white grandparents. 
and that's what's happening. That's what's happening when, when Donald Trump wins Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, is those voting populations, if you, if you look at statistically nationwide, they're disproportionately older and disproportionately white. I'm not making any value judgment about that. I'm telling you some math. All I'm doing is math with you. And so the map changing has actually been because of demographic choices. Young people saying, I'm running to opportunity, but the older people, and those are, those are whiter states, staying in place and becoming more Republican voters. So uh, that's my demographic theory. I would love to hear uh, if you think I'm right about that. Here's what needs to happen, though, with all of the Midwesterners and Northeasterners who've come down here. Let me just remind you guys, you're, you are welcome to, you're so welcome here. I love that. I love that more and more people are coming to the South. And I mean that. I mean, the, the excellence that we're getting from the Northeast and the Midwest as they move South, I, I, I hope we're a very good host and this place becomes, becomes home and feels like home and you get all the opportunity you could want. You know, I actually met a guy from the, the Jersey Shore. He was at North Greenville University here recently. He brought his son to visit and take a look. And they're moving to Somerville, South Carolina, just north of Charleston, for the opportunity. Just trying to get away from the the taxes and the the horrific cost of of where they live. And they're moving down here. I'm I'm encouraged by that. I hope they have a great great time. But I, I said to him, I did say to him because I could tell he was sympathetic to me. And I would say to the rest of you because I'm broadcasting the upstate of South Carolina. I got listeners in the upstate, not just the podcast. Don't forget what you left. If you left high property taxes and high taxes to do more stuff for your schools, hey, well, don't do that to us, okay? Like, you came here for a reason. You came here, and we had our, 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 our cost of living. We had our way of being. So you came here for a reason. Don't come here and then bring your way with you. You'll ruin it because you came here for a reason. Let's, let's keep it how we, how we are, especially economically, so we can all prosper together. Okay, so I'm out of time, uh, and I had a bunch of other stuff I wanted to do, but that random thought hit me and thought I, thought I would share it with you. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.